I am the Christian the devil warned you about. That was, that was printed on a dog tag that was worn by a very zealous member of the Baptist youth group I was in as a teenager, um, and that zealous kid might have been me. I just, when I was a kid, I just, I loved Jesus so much, and I wanted everybody to know that I loved Jesus, and I wanted everyone to love Jesus like I did, and so... I wore this dog tag that said, I'm the Christian the devil warned you about. I have no idea what I thought that was going to accomplish. Like, oh, the devil's been telling me about you. Please tell me about Jesus so I'll know how to love him. Like, it didn't make any sense. It was just, I was so zealous for Jesus, but I'm afraid what that dog tag did is it said more about my zealous, being zealous for my zealousness than it said anything about being zealous for Jesus. It was misdirected zeal. I think my heart at the time was right. And I just loved Jesus and wanted others to love him. But I don't know what that was supposed to accomplish. I don't know that Jesus had had up to this point in his ministry more fans than he had on Palm Sunday. It's, it's the weekend that we celebrate this weekend as Jesus rides in on a donkey into Jerusalem to loud praise and gratitude and palm branches waving and people excited about the Messiah coming into Jerusalem. And it was awesome. Jesus said that what they did was right and good for if they had not done it, even the rocks would cry out. But in the book of John, we also read that the people that followed Jesus didn't fully understand what he was coming for until a week later after the resurrection. There was zeal, but it was not completely informed. And so while that crowd yelled praise for Jesus and was excited about the entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem and most of them thinking this is the Messiah that's going to overturn the Roman government and establish a kingdom on earth, less than a week later there we find Jesus standing before a crowd again, stripped, beaten, bloodied. And that crowd yelled with passionate zeal as well that he would be crucified misdirected zeal. You know, one crowd was zealous about Jesus up until the point, they were fans up until the point that Jesus um, could no longer deliver what they wanted him to deliver. And another crowd was zealous to see the Son of God crucified. I mean, how often are we zealous for Jesus making him into the God of our own creation, and we're zealous for him up until the point that he ceases to be who we want him to be for us. And how many of us, like that other crowd on Good Friday, demand that Jesus surrender to our desires? When Paul was on his second missionary journey, he spent some time living and working in a city called Corinth. And while he was there, he wrote to a very zealous church, In Rome. And if you have your Bibles with you this weekend, turn over to the book of Romans. We're going to camp out there for a little while. If not, no problem. We're going to throw the scriptures on the screen. But in Romans chapter 10, verse 1, we find Paul writing these words Dear brothers and sisters, the longing of my heart and my prayer to God is for the people of Israel to be saved. I know what enthusiasm they have for God, but it is misdirected zeal. 
For they don't understand God's way of making people right with himself. Refusing to accept God's way, they cling to their own way of getting right with God by trying to keep the law. For Christ has already accomplished the purpose for which the law was given. As a result, all who believe in him are made right with God. He said they're enthusiastic about God, but they have misdirected zeal. Now, historically, the people of God had struggled with misdirected zeal in the form of idolatry. I mean, all the way back to Moses on Mount Sinai getting the Ten Commandments, and the people of God below are creating an idol to worship. And for hundreds of years, they had misdirected zeal, throwing their worship to the gods of people around them. But then we fast forward a little bit, and about 600 years before Jesus came, the people of God were sent into exile in Babylon. And when they returned to the promised land from Babylon, they no longer struggled with the idolatry of the gods of the people around them like they did before. Instead, their zeal became focused on keeping the law. Every piece of the law, they sought salvation by keeping the law. And for 600 years, they focused on that. And in some ways, the law to them became another form of idolatry. It was misdirected zeal after Jesus came. See, I think all of us are zealous about different things. I have great zeal for a number of different things. I mean, I'm zealous for, um, and you know, some of the things we're zealous about are good things. Some of them are bad things. Um, I personally am zealous for historical theology. I just love it. I'm a nerd. Love it. Uh, I'm zealous for LSU football. I mean, I live for the fall. Um, I am zealous for Corky's Barbecue of Memphis. Love it. Now, now those are good things to be zealous for. Sometimes our zeal is misdirected. For instance, our our, uh, wonderful campus pastor at Kingstown, Pastor Chris Gerald, is a Steelers fan. That's misdirected zeal. Our youth pastor, Jenilee LaForce, is zealous about Justin Bieber. That is misdirected zeal. Can I get an amen? We're zealous about a lot of things, and sometimes they're good things, and and sometimes they're bad things. And what we find to this people that Paul is writing about is that they're passionate about the law. They're zealous about the law. And when we hear the word law, we, we usually think of that as having a negative connotation, like the law is a bad thing. Especially as New Testament Christians who read what Paul says about the law, we think, well, well, that's a bad thing. They shouldn't have anything to do with that. But the law was intended to be a good thing. I mean, when, when the Jewish people of this time heard about the law, that was a blessing that God gave to them. It was a pathway that they had been given to get to God. It was a way that they could approach God. It was a way that they could connect in relationship with God. And the the law was intended to point people to Christ. The law was intended to be a pathway for people to come to God. But what happened over time is that the path became the point. And when the path turned into the point, it all broke down. The law was given to be a tool to point people to Christ. But when the tool became the point in and of itself, Paul says that's misdirected zeal. That you've ceased to be zealous about the object, the person for whom the law is supposed to point you. And you've become zealous about the law itself. 
And, and Paul isn't speaking from a place of, of critical judgment. He embraces his own, his own fault in this. In Galatians 1.14, he says, I was zealous more than anybody else for the traditions of our ancestors. And he also said that my zeal led me to persecute the church. So Paul owns his own misdirected zeal in this. And so it's like he's got an antenna up when he writes to the churches of the first century, realizing that there is zealous um, excitement and enthusiasm in the churches, but sometimes it's just a little bit misdirected. And sometimes it's even for good things. But when the point is not Jesus Christ, then something has gone wrong. I mean, if we look at the church in Thessalonica, they were, very, they were very, um persecuted people and they were suffering and they focused on that and that caused them to be zealous about the return of Jesus. And so when Paul wrote to them, he said, hey guys, glad that you're zealous about that. It's a good thing it's coming and the promise awaits you, but don't be idle with your lives. Live lives that point to Christ. In, in Ephesus, they were really focused and zealous about rooting out false teaching and magic. And, and, um, and, and the, in the Colossian church, there was a lot of debate over what kind of feast day should be celebrated and should angels be worshipped and all of these other questions about faith and how it should play out. And they were zealous about that. And I think that the church in Corinth is like the poster child for zealous living. I mean, in Corinth, they were zealous about the spiritual gifts. Good thing, but they were so zealous, it was a little bit misdirected. And so Paul had to write to them to say, hey, calm down a little bit. If it's not pointing people to Jesus, then don't do it. They were, they were zealous about getting to the root of whether or not they should eat meat sacrificed to idols. And so Paul writes to them about humility, having the same um, attitude that Jesus had. I mean, the Corinthian church was so zealous about communion that people got drunk during communion. I mean, that's some zeal. They were so zealous about it. And so to the church in Corinth, Paul writes something very similar to what he's telling the church in Rome. And over in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul is writing to them for 14 chapters. He's written this letter to clear the cobwebs for this church to see Jesus more clearly. And so he addresses things like spiritual gifts and marriage and humility and communion and all of these good things that need to be talked about, need to be a part of our faith. And he clears away the cobwebs for them to see Jesus more rightly. And then in chapter 15, he says to them, let me now remind you, dear brothers and sisters, of the good news I preached to you before. You, welcome, you welcomed it then and still stand firm in it. It is this good news that saves you if you continue to believe the message I told you, unless, of course, you believe something that was never true in the first place. I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture said. He was seen by Peter and then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. I love Paul's like parenthetical commentary. Then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. Last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I also saw him. 
after 14 chapters worth of letter to the church in Corinth, where he talks about all this good stuff, marriage and communion and spiritual gifts and how to walk rightly in relationship to others. Paul says, now let me remind you of what is most important. That Jesus Christ died, was buried, was raised and seen. That Jesus Christ, the sinless, spotless Son of God, came to earth wrapped in the skin of his own creation, subjected to the care of his own creation, took on the sin of the world, absorbed the wrath of God that was directed at us and died for us and was buried. That happened. Paul is saying, let me remind you of what is most important. That happened. But not just there. The story didn't end there. He raised and was seen by individuals, by groups of people. And last of all, by Paul himself. He's saying, this is of most importance. Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, died on the cross for us and was raised. See, this is what is most important, that Jesus came and did this. Because Romans 3.23 says that we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then Romans 6.23 says that the wages of that sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 5, 8, it says that God loved us so much that he sent his son to die for us while we were yet sinners. That gives us something to praise God about through eternity. 1 Corinthians 15, 21 says that God made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. Paul's saying to the church in Corinth, this is of most importance. This is of first importance. This is the most important thing that we embrace as followers of Christ. Over and over in scripture, uh, we read about God's jealousy. There's a place in scripture where it actually says God whose name is jealous is a jealous God. Like if you didn't get it the first time, he's jealous. And, and we like to read over verses like that because in our brains, jealousy is a bad thing. We don't like, well, you think, well, jealousy is not, not good. So if God's jealous, that's, that's something, I don't, I don't know what to do with that. But I think for us to understand jealousy rightly, we have to understand the motivation, the object, and the outcome of that jealousy. That's how we determine its purity. And what we realize through scripture is that God was jealous for his name and for his people. And that jealousy drove him to the cross. So what we find is that just as it is with all of God's attributes, all of God's attributes are good towards us. They are meant to be good towards us. God's jealousy led him to the cross. That should drive us to our knees in worship. And what Paul is saying is that this is of most importance. That God was jealous for you and calls us to be zealous for him. It's of first importance. I, I, again, we, we can be zealous about all this stuff. We can be zealous about a lot of things. And, and I was thinking about that um, this week. I, I, I drew a couple pictures, and you'll see very quickly why I studied engineering and not art. But if we could go on and, and throw the first one up, I think that on the screen we've got, this is, this is how, 
This is how it's possible for many of us to view our lives, that we're there at the top, Heather's at the top of her life, and this is the life that I control, that I lead. And I have these different boxes of things that I'm zealous for, and I compartmentalize my life, and I've got Jesus in one box because I'm zealous for Jesus. And I've got, uh, you know, NCC in another box because that's my job, it's my calling, it's my passion, whether that's the people I get to work with, the people I get to serve, the things I get to do. I love it, I live it, breathe it. Sleep it. I like love NCC. And, and then another box, I've got my family and my friends and the people that I care deeply about, and the people that care deeply about me. So that's in, an, in another box. And, and then LSU football is in there, you know. And, 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 and so this is my life. These are the things that I manage. This is the stuff that my life is, a, that I'm a part of, and the things that are part of my life. But what happens when we, when we begin to grow in our faith, we realize. Well, we realize in Scripture that Jesus says he wants to be first. And, and Paul says this is of first importance. It's most important. And so then we, we put Jesus at the top of everything else. And so I've got another one here. So now Jesus is at the top. He's not just in one box equal to all the other boxes. He's on top. And so NCC and family and friends and LSU football and Corky's Barbecue and all that other stuff is secondary to Jesus. And, and if I'd done this right, I would have put it in a list, you know, like an ordered list of priorities. The problem is our priority lists are constantly shifting. You know, like if, if LSU is playing University of Alabama in the national championship, that's of most importance on that night. You know, that takes precedent over the phone call from my mom. But that didn't happen anyway because she was watching it too. But you know what I'm saying? Like, like we might put Jesus at the top of our priority list, but then beneath that, we've got this constantly shifting list of priorities. And one of the things that I'm discovering is that Jesus is not really interested at being first in the list of ever-changing priorities. He wants to be the foundation and filter through which we view every other priority in our life. So number three says, okay, here's my life, and Jesus is first importance, and he is most important, and everything else, every other passion, every other priority should be viewed through that relationship. Jesus wants to be a part of every decision we make and every conversation we have and every priority and passion we have. See, otherwise, with that, with that old view of it, then we view Jesus through the lens of our interests. But if we flip it around, then we view all of our interests and all of our callings and all of our priorities and passions through Jesus Christ. Because he doesn't want to be the first in a list. He wants to saturate everything that's on the list. I mean, what are you passionate about? If you are passionate, like we're passionate about lots of good things. If you're passionate about social justice, view that through the lens of Jesus Christ. If you're passionate about um, your family, view that through the lens of Jesus Christ. You're passionate about theology, view it through Jesus. You're passionate about politics, view it through the lens of Jesus. Otherwise, we let our view of Jesus be tangled and tainted and zeal misdirected because we view Jesus through the lens of all those other things. Jesus wants to be a first priority and he wants to saturate and be the foundation and the filter through which every other passion and priority of our lives is understood that's the gospel jesus died was buried was raised and seen and that should mark every part of our life and so paul tells the church in corinth you've received it 
you stand firm in it, and it is saving you if you believe in it. First importance. It's the manifestation of God being jealous for us and desiring that we be zealous for him. So let's head back over to Romans for a minute because there's this parallel message that that Paul is giving to both of these churches. So Paul is telling the church in Corinth that if you, you received it, you stand firm in it, and if you believe it, you will be saved. So what does it mean then to believe it? What does it mean to stand firm in it? Over, back over in Romans 10, Paul um, outlines this a little more uh, in depth for us. And in Romans 10, verse 9, he says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God, and it is by confessing with your mouth that you are saved. As the scriptures tell us, anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Jew and Gentile are the same in this respect. They have the same Lord who gives generously to all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He's kind of echoing some things that were said in the book of Deuteronomy when it says that the word of God is on our hearts and on our lips. And in Psalm 19, 14, when David asked that the words of his mouth and the meditation of his heart be pleasing to the Lord. If we confess, if we believe. We've been in this series called If for a while now, and we've talked about the potential and the promise that is found in embracing an if statement. There's so many ifs in Scripture. You know, if, if, if we humble ourselves and pray, if we open our hearts together, there are all of these moments in Scripture where we're told if we do something, if we believe something, that it opens up the windows of heaven and ignites a spiritual chain reaction in our lives. And I might submit to you today that this if, if you confess, if you believe, is the most critical if that we'll come to in Scripture. Because the decision that we make on this one affects everything. And so Paul says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord was the earliest creed of the church. Before the Nicene Creed, before the Apostles' Creed, before all of these different doctrinal matters were debated and considered and written down, Jesus is Lord was the confession that united the followers of Christ. I mean, claiming that Jesus is Lord um, puts him in a certain position in our lives where he is the foundation and the filter for everything else. Jesus is Lord carries with it this idea of repentance, that we turn around from our desires and, and what we want and the control that we want to have on our lives and we place it in the hands of Christ. One of the things that Pastor Mark has said a lot recently, I just, I love this. He says, a lot of times when we come to faith, what we're really doing is we're asking Jesus to follow us instead of making a decision that we're going to follow Christ. That's a really critical distinction. Because if we say Jesus is Lord, there's no asking Jesus to follow us because he is Lord. He is God. He is creator and king. And in our lives, he has the reins to rule. 
If we confess with our mouths, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord was the creed that those who stepped into the waters of baptism in the early church said. They would declare Jesus is Lord, declaring one, that Jesus was God, and two, that Jesus was Lord of their lives individually. And then Paul says, if you believe that God raised him from the dead. Belief is not simply giving mental assent to an intellectual proposition. There was no, in, 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 the, in the Hebrew way of thinking, there was no difference between head knowledge and life action. I mean, Paul came from a tradition where he realized if you knew something, it wasn't just something you knew up here, but it was something you acted on. You believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. It's not just a, it's not just a statement of a, of a faith sentence that we check off and we say, yes, I believe that. It changes the way that we live. And belief and confession are not two separate activities. Matthew 12 tells us that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so what we say we believe and what happens in our heart and what we confess with our mouth is all tied together. Ambrose of Milan, who was one of the ancient fathers of the faith, said, with these twin trumpets of heart and mouth, we arrive at the Holy Land, the grace of resurrection. So let them always sound together in harmony for us that we may always hear the voice of God. Let the utterances of angels and prophets arouse us and move us to hasten to higher things. And Paul says, if we confess that Jesus is Lord, and if we believe that God raised him from the dead, we'll be saved. For by confessing with your mouth, um, for it is by confessing with your mouth that you're saved. It's by believing in your heart that you're made right with God. Some translations say that it's by believing in your heart that you will be justified. And so what does it mean when he says that we'll be saved? He told the church in Corinth, if you believe this, you'll be saved. He tells the church in Rome, if you do this, if you confess and you believe, you'll be saved. Because by confession, you're making yourself right with God. Confession puts you in a place of being justified with God. What does that mean? Well, justification, being made right with God, is, means that when we stand before God, he doesn't see us covered in sin. He sees us covered with the grace of Jesus Christ. Justified means that legally we are in right standing with God. That Jesus has absorbed, he has taken on the sin, he's absorbed the wrath. There's nothing left to be poured out on us because we're covered in grace. That's what it means to be justified. That's what it means to be made right. And when we confess that Jesus is Lord, it justifies us. It makes us right with God. But I think this word saved has come to mean, um, you know, it's become a very churchy word, a very religious word. If you say, I am saved, um, you know, or, or I have been saved, like we tend to use that to mean that we have a certain religious status. It's a certain brand that we carry on our lives. I'm saved. And I think that we've stripped it of its original meaning in a, in a way that it just then becomes loaded with a bunch of ideas that it was never really intended to have associated with it. And so if you look at the word saved, in the original Greek, it was a word sozo. And it did carry with it this idea of being justified and being made right with God. But it also meant much more than that. One idea that it carried with it is this idea of being made free, of being liberated, of, being, um, of having chains broken off of you to live in freedom. 
And so when we read when Jesus says in Luke 4.18, Jesus declares what he's come to do. And he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. There's that word gospel. This is what the gospel is about. To bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released. That the blind will see. That the oppressed will be set free. And that the time of the Lord's favor has come. It's not just about a brand we carry. It's about complete freedom. The cross is not just about making us right with God. If that were all it was, that would be reason enough to praise God for eternity. But it's not just that. It's about bringing us to a place where we live in freedom. That regardless of the hurts, the hang-ups, the habits that are in our life, the cross has been, has been poured out to us for freedom. That God has come to proclaim liberty to the captives. If we believe in our hearts that Jesus was raised from the dead, then that changes everything. I mean, if God can do that, there's, no, I mean, there's nothing God can't do. Sin and death and everything has been defeated and he's come to give us freedom. If we really believe that, then all bets are off. God can do anything in our life. That's being saved. We're being saved. And it also carried with it this idea of, of being reconciled. So we're made right with God. He brings freedom. And then there's also reconciliation. When Jesus talks about the kingdom and he talks about the gospel and he tells the story of the prodigal son, it's a story about restoration of relationship. When he tells Zacchaeus, come, I'm going to hang out at your house today, He was restoring Zacchaeus to his relationship with God and his relationship with the people around him. There's so many places in the New Testament where where we're told, when Ephesians, Colossians, 1 Timothy, where it's written that the cross was meant to reconcile us to God. It's not just about putting us in right standing. It's also restoring relationship. The gospel, the good news, the thing that is of most importance is that because Christ died and was buried and was raised and seen, we live in a place of being made right with God. We live in a place of liberation and freedom. We live in a place of reconciliation and restored relationship if we confess that Jesus is Lord and if we believe that God raised him from the dead. God is jealous for us. And calls us to be zealous for him. It's just so easy to have misdirected zeal. I mean, Peter told Jesus, I'm going to go to death with you. That was misdirected zeal because we know he didn't go there. When Paul was persecuting the church, he did it because of misdirected zeal. When, when the church in Corinth is, is getting crazy with communion, it's misdirected zeal. And so many of us have passions and priorities. Some of them are good and God-given and God-directed. But when Jesus is not of first importance, it's misdirected. If we keep going in this passage, it, it gets to the point where it says that um, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. All who will confess, all who will believe will be saved. What we've got to understand this weekend is that Jesus is easily accessible and equally accessible to all. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. I I, I have this, I, I just know this. I know that there are people here this weekend that because of the choices you've made and because of the things that you've done in your life, you believe that you are too far removed from God. 
You believe that, that this is good and this sounds great and, and I can see that there's hope for other people, but there's no hope for me. That's not what this verse says. And that goes against all that the gospel is about. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Some of you here this week and think that because of things that have been done to you, sin committed against you, that that has rendered you unwanted and undesirable to God. And nothing could be further from the truth. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved because our God is in the business of liberation. He's in the business of freedom. He's in the business of healing. And he's in the business of restoring relationship. Jesus is easily accessible and equally accessible to all. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. I think we just have to stop trying to save ourselves. We just confess and we believe. Now, some of us are here this weekend and we think, well, I just have a lot of questions. Like, I'm not sure what I believe about the authenticity of Scripture. I'm not sure what I believe about the historicity of Jesus Christ. There are some important philosophical questions like how could a good God let bad things happen in the world? Those are, all, those are all very legitimate, valid, good questions. And we embrace the tension that those questions bring here at National Community Church. That's why we do things like Alpha or Theology 101 to wrestle with that stuff. But here's the deal. At some point, at the end of the day, when all is said and done, those questions really are about something out there. And there's a much more personal decision that we have to make. Because at the end of the day, we're all people of faith. I mean, we have all put our faith in something. I mean, we've either put our faith and our trust in the idea that there is no God, and we're banking on that, and at the end of the day, it's just all nothing. Or we've put our faith in some idea that was developed by someone who's now dead. Or We put our faith in the idea that God is who he says he is and did what he said he would do. And we confess that and we believe it. There are hard questions that we have to wrestle through philosophically and theologically, but at the end of the day, when it is all said and done, we are all putting our faith in something that we will all always have questions about. And for me, I am banking on the idea that if I confess that Jesus is Lord and if I believe God raised him from the dead, I will be saved. And it's not just something for the end of time. It's something that we can live in right now. At some point, this whole conversation about what's most important and that Jesus died and was buried and was raised and seen ceases to become just information for our consideration. And becomes a decision point that can lead to transformation. And that's what I want to do this weekend. I want to bring bring us to the place where we're at the cross and we have to decide what we're going to do with this. Paul says it's of most importance. It's of first importance. And if you confess that Jesus is Lord and if you believe that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. There, There are two ways that we celebrate this. One is by baptism. 
Baptism was kind of the first step in the early church in Scripture of people saying, hey, Jesus is Lord. And when they said Jesus is Lord for the first time, the first time they confessed that, they went under the waters of baptism in, in the way of identifying with and obeying Christ, going under the waters signifying death to self and being raised to new life in Christ. He said, I believe Jesus was raised from the dead and I want myself to be raised to new life as well. If, if you're here this weekend and you've never, may, maybe you've professed Jesus as Lord at some point in your life, but you've never been baptized. I can't think of a better weekend to do it than Easter. Or maybe you're at a place this weekend where you say, I need to confess Jesus as Lord for the first time. And, and I, need, I need to identify with Christ in death and resurrection. I need to be raised to new life. I need to experience that liberation and that restoration and that justification that we talked about. Baptism is the first step. See, we don't baptize, we don't get baptized because we have our life together. We don't get baptized because we have everything worked out. We get baptized because we need Jesus to work things out in our lives. We don't wait until we have everything together in one nice, neat package to bring to Jesus. We get baptized because we are completely and totally screwed up without him. The second way that we celebrate this is through communion. Communion is a way that we come to the table and we remember what is of most importance. That we kind of put a stake down in the ground and we say, this is of most importance, this is of first importance. Jesus is Lord. He died, was buried, was raised and seen, and this is, the, this is where I live, in this place of most importance. And today we're going to celebrate communion. Communion is intended to be celebrated by those who have proclaimed Jesus as Lord because that's what you're doing as you celebrate communion. You're, you're recognizing who you've put your faith into. And so if you're here to, today and, and you've never made that decision, before we take communion, we're going to give you an opportunity to do that. And if you're not at that place, that is totally okay. That's all right. You can let that communion just, just go by and, and I would encourage you to pray because God still wants to talk to you. And maybe you're not even sure if there's a God there to pray to. Just talk to him. If we confess and if we believe, we'll be made right with God and we'll be saved. For some of you, that confession and that belief today is going to be a renewal of something that you did years ago. And you just come to a place again where you say, I confess once again that Jesus is Lord. And I'm believing through communion once again that God raised him from the dead. For some of you, it'll be the first time. I'm going to pray for you now. And when, I, when I'm done praying, our campus pastors across all of our locations are going to come up and just kind of give you some direction about where to go next. If you confess, if you believe. God, thank you so much for the gospel. God, thank you for the good news that Jesus died and was buried, but he was raised and seen. God, I pray that that would be of most importance in our lives, that it would be of first importance, that that 
that relationship with you would be the foundation and the filter through which we view everything else in our lives. God, I, I pray today for those that are here and they need for the first time to confess that you are Lord and believe that God raised you from the dead. I pray that your Holy Spirit would just draw near to them now and, and draw them close to your heart, that you would give them the courage to make that step. God, I thank you that you are jealous for your name, for your worship. You were jealous for us, that that led you to the cross. I pray that because of that, we would be zealous for you and you alone. In Jesus' name, amen.